everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups to learn more about their challenges and strategies that they use to scale their business. My guest today is Adrian Nussenbaum, who's the co-founder and CEO of Miracle. Miracle was founded in 2012 and is a global leader in online marketplace platforms, which is a SaaS-based solution that allows brands to host transactions between buyers and sellers of products. Backed by Bain Capital Ventures, Miracle lists some of the world's largest retailers as its customers, including Best Buy, Walmart, Urban Outfitters, Airbus, Tetra Pak, Care4, H&M, Toyota Material Handling, and so many more. Adrian is also a very active member in the academic space and currently serves as head coach of the Harvard Business School's Rock Accelerator Program. I'm so delighted to have you on my show, Adrian. Welcome. Hi, Anita. Thanks for having me. I think I want to start off just to understand how you came about starting Miracle. And also, does the name have any significance? <laughs> so we're two founders, myself and Philippe Corot, who is based in Paris. So we're splitting ourselves. I'm in Boston, he's in Paris. And we, uh, we have been working together for now 15 years. So Miracle is what I would call a an intentional accidental company intention <laughs> intentional in the sense that you know both founders have always wanted to be entrepreneurs and and have been entrepreneurs before in their lives intentional in the sense that when my wife introduced me to Philippe I uh, I knew that I really wanted to do something with him and and work with him I mean past the first time we met where we really hated each other but as a second <laughs> time and um, and so so really intentional and accidental because the way the whole thing started and I'll try to be brief but it's kind of funny about the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, I was at the time in between a company that I had built in New York and and um, and sold very miserably but at least took it through the the 2000 2003 uh, mayhem. And I was working as a consultant at Deloitte, taking care of like restructuring companies. And I, that's when I met Philippe and, and he had another company at the time, his second business. And he asked me to, for advice to help him uh, sell the business. So I, I was doing stuff on the side because I was a bit bored on my consultant daily life. And that's how we got to work together. And one day Philippe came to me with his, his then partner and he said, I have this new idea uh, we're going to create a marketplace for video games and everything around video games. And, you know, frankly, I was not a tech geek. I never played video games in my life. So that's the accidental part of it. But I knew I wanted to go back to being an entrepreneur and I wanted to work with Philippe. So uh, we were having lunch at a sushi place and I said, okay, I'll go to the office and I'll resign, which is literally what I did uh, in that afternoon. And, um, and so we started this company and I think what was interesting is that that was back in 2005, end of 2005. And already, uh, there was this idea that marketplaces, which connect buyers and sellers versus trying to, you know, buy all the products yourself and make the products. So was, was an early concept then in the, in the consumer space, but already there was this vision that the internet would allow the creation of network effects and bring build that scale that now everybody knows with Amazon, Alibaba, Uber, Airbnb, but that was like 15 years ago. So we started this, we started this company and we experienced uh, running and being a marketplace ourselves up to the, the time where the company was acquired 
by a large retailer in, in Europe. And we joined the, that company with our teams and we had the mandate during three years as part of an earnout to, to grow this business, which we did, um, transforming the, the way this, you know, very 50, 60 year old retailer was doing business. And we saw the impact of, of change and also the difficulties of driving change in a, in a traditional organization. But really, we also saw the power of the marketplace model. And to answer your, your, long, your question, and I'm really trying to go fast, but as we were wind, I mean, getting to the end of our earnout, we had built a you know, multi-hundred million dollar online business for this, this company through a marketplace. And we were having a, a nice omelette in a cafe in Paris next to my place. And we were saying, okay, what do we do next? And that's when Philippe said, you know, I think marketplaces are going to dominate the world. And today there is no out of the box technology solution that allows to create and power and operate a marketplace efficiently. Uh, we've seen how companies are trying to build themselves. They try to always reinvent the wheel. And very often it's, a, it's at best many millions and tens of millions wasted. At worst, it's a, just a failure. So let's build this magical framework, technology framework that the, that would allow to power that. And that's kind of how we started playing with the name. And we, we had this magic box. And then suddenly we, we went on miracle box. And then we dropped the box because box really was a bit yeah. old. And we liked the sound of call, you know, Oracle, miracle. And, and we felt that uh, there was a lot of stuff to do on a marketing standpoint. And also, if you walk into an organization and, you know, when we sell marketplace, you're basically selling an organization, a way to, I mean, asking them to change the way they do business and organizations don't like that as much as they, you know, they praise change, change is scary, change is, is disruptive. And we felt that it would be fun if people in a room started to refer to us as the miracle solution, the miracle team. And that's what happened over the years. So, you know, now I walk in meetings and people say, Hey, this is the miracle team. Uh, the miracle solution can do this and that. So that's the, the long, short story. That's, that has a nice ring to it. Uh, I can see, I didn't realize there was so much thought that went into naming and looks like it really <laughs> played to the strength of the brand that you were trying to build. So, huh, interesting. You know, I was really excited to talk to you because of the times, the interesting times that we live in right now and the impact that it's, it has in terms of the e-commerce growth you're hearing about how so much is going online. So I really want to get into some of those aspects with you. But first, how does Miracle actually fit into the overall e-commerce technology space? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how Miracle is specifically helping um, during the COVID crisis. Yeah. So I'm going to try to, you know, this is going to be a non-tech person trying to oversimplify something, but I'll, I'll do my best. So if you think of uh, the e-commerce technology ecosystem, mm -hmm. um, when e-commerce started, you started having solutions that were basically, you know, website, web shop builders. So that was the, and the idea was to enable uh, the, the, the ability to display a catalog of products online, capture to, you know, have people search for products and add to a basket and pay. And, and that world has really been, has exploded from like 2005 until recent, I mean, until still today, but, and you've seen the wave of 
all the companies that grew and were then acquired, like Magento acquired by Adobe, Demandware acquired by Salesforce, Hybris acquired by SAP, ATG acquired by Oracle. And then now you have the new wave of more headless solutions. But basically, and you have obviously the Shopify and the Magento. So fundamentally, all these solutions, they allow a very standard e-commerce, which is I'm the, I'm the person who actually makes the goods or buys the goods, and I'm going to list them on the website for people to come and sell them and buy them. And when you, when you think of what a marketplace is, you're not actually making or buying the products that you're selling, but you want to be able to plug. It's like virtually plugging behind your store, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of third-party sellers who, who are the ones, you know, putting their catalog and, you know, make, putting, uh, informing the price, the inventory, uh, getting the orders, fulfilling the orders. And really that whole mechanism that happens behind, which is what a marketplace of third-party sellers is, did not exist in all those commerce solutions. It's not what they do. So what Miracle is, it's really the, the complement, the extension of these commerce uh, solutions which, you know, oversimplistically, but Miracle has, you know, a, a big interface for the sellers and an interface for the team who is operating the marketplace on a daily basis and all the workflows and process in the, in the middle to, you know, sync orders, update prices and quantities and enforce the, you know, a big issue is how do you enforce the quality of service and experience coming from third parties. So there's a lot of like secret sauce in Miracle to, to make that work. So that's, so, really, that's really what we do. So does that mean, you mentioned a few companies, you mentioned Shopify, you mentioned e-commerce companies like Magento and Hybris, et cetera. So do you plug into all those systems to provide this other functionality around building a marketplace or do you actually compete with any of those? No, no, we, we partner with all of them. We actually have, you know, certified and connectors with most of them. And all of our clients are either companies that already have an e-commerce and, and they, they want to extend their, their, their catalog, their, they want to bring their distributors or dealers on the platform. Uh, so it's either an extension of an existing business or it's companies who are creating from scratch a new online business and want to operate it either hundred percent or partially as a, as a marketplace, uh, as a marketplace model. And so we, we, in, in both cases, either we integrate into an existing e-commerce solution, or if it's a, it's a creation of a marketplace from scratch, we partner and are combined with an e-commerce solution. And it can be a, it can be a completely headless solution or it can be a, a big enterprise commerce solution. We're completely agnostic to that. Experience. And what if I was starting something and I needed to have some of the e-commerce capability, but I also wanted to create a, a marketplace. Do I need to have two solutions? Behind the curtain, you would have two solutions, but because we have built those connectors, it would feel very seamless. And actually you, you, you were asking about you know, some of the initiatives we, we, we took during the COVID crisis. And it's a, it's a good answer. I mean, it's a good illustration of your, of your question because uh, our teams in France uh, at the, the onset of the crisis uh, were looking at ways to, to do something good. And, um, and we felt that 
I don't know if, I mean, now it seems already far away, but it's only 60 days ago, 70 days ago, but there, there was a big, and it's, it's still difficult, but there was a, almost impossible to, to provide all the healthcare facilities and essential businesses, hospitals with, a, with PPE, so personal protective equipment, as they were facing shortage uh, from their traditional suppliers. And at the other side, on the other side, you had a, a huge number of companies that suddenly shifted their production to be able to make those PPE uh, products. And, um, and so it's a typical situation where on one side you have demand, who's, which is not fulfilled. And on the other side, you have supply, which is not finding demand. And this is kind of like, you know, in this Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood movies, it's, it calls for, for the, the, the miracle, and, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, let's set up a marketplace that can connect supply and demand efficiently. So that's what we were, we decided that we would build a marketplace for PPE products uh, in France initially. And at the same time, the French government uh, reached out to us because we're part of a group of companies in France called the Next 40, which are like the 40 most promising tech companies. And, and they were asking all of them if they can help. So, so we said, yeah, that's great. We have actually that idea of doing a marketplace. And in 48 hours, basically using uh, our platform and the Magento connector that we have built, our teams were able to launch an online marketplace in, in really just under 48 hours. And, um, and it, this platform has had, you know, and we like to say has saved lives because we, I think we are now at, uh, you know, close to, uh, uh, I don't want to say anything stupid, but 50 million euros in transaction value in, in wow. 60 days, uh, thousands of products, masks, gown, gallons of gel and, and you know, protective shields and stuff like that. And, um, and really even funny stories. Uh, which show the agility of the marketplace model. For example, there is one of the sellers who before the COVID crisis, I mean, they are still, but they are a manufacturer of a horse riding gown. Uh, And obviously their business completely tanked at the beginning of the crisis. And they decided to, to repurpose their, their factory to make masks and, and things like that but they didn't know how to sell masks because they had no, you know, no reach to the hospitals. So they right. joined, they joined the, the platform as a seller and they listed their products. And within 30 or 40 days, they did half of one year's revenue <laughs> by selling masks. Uh, so, I mean, wow. the, whole, the whole situation, obviously, you know, we would rather have not this web, you know, this marketplace exists. But it showed that, you know, nothing, there's no other way you could have done something uh, as reactive as that if it weren't by staging a, a marketplace model. If, if we had tried to say, okay, I'm going to create a store where I sell PP equipment and then I'm going to hire merchants and buyers and I'm going to go to China and find some suppliers and I'm going to make orders and, and define the, the level of invent. I mean, this is all commerce. It's the... Right. And so our, you know, so that's the, that's the story. Well, that's really fascinating. So are you doing this only for France? Are you doing it for other governments or organizations as well? It seems like something a lot of people could, could leverage for the current times. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I don't want to hijack your, your podcast because we could talk a lot about that, but 
so in France, we are operating this platform 100% pro bono. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and currently, it's over 15 people from our teams who have been working on it for 60 days. So what, what happened is that very quickly, we reached out to uh, other governments, uh, European countries, here in the US, and uh, we were basically telling them, you know, we have this platform. It's, we can really download a copy of it and host it and yeah. you can have it for free. And we ran into uh, a lot of administrative red tape. Mm. And, um, and sometimes, you know, the same kind of slow decision making process that you can find in, you don't need to be in administration. You find it in, in just the enterprise world. Yeah. You know, like I need to refer to that person. This person makes the decision. And, um, and, and we would have hoped that, you know, uh, times, exceptional times would, would call for exceptional measures. And, yeah. uh, and I won't expand too much because it's, okay. it's, it's a bit frustrating and I don't want to, you know, uh, put the spotlight, uh, share the spotlight on any specific uh, country, uh, bec- but none, <laughs> none were none overperformed any others. And I think it's interesting because the only reason we were able to do it in France, uh, and France is often criticized for you know the, the level of implication of its administration and government um, and taxes and everything, but at the same time. They, so, the, so President Macron uh, launched this next 40 initiative. And, and I think it's a very positive form of like, you know, economic sovereignty uh, and not conservative and protective. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, engaging in favor of, of in- innovation and companies. And, and because of that partnership, we were ha- able to have the, the direct conversations with them right. to tell them, no, no, if you really want to do something that works, don't do it this way because mm. otherwise we're, we're just going to waste money and time. And so, so we, and we weren't able to do that with other, other countries. Yeah. So far. yeah. There was a certain level of trust already established yeah. in France. Yeah. Okay. Just to clarify, as a company, you sell the platform that allows anybody to create their own marketplaces. You don't actually serve the services to run marketplace, except in this exceptional case where you did it for, for France. Is that, is that correct? Yes. It's, I mean, as a full operated model, no, we never do it. Like this is the exception. What we do for all our clients is we, we have a, 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 a set of services that range from uh, supplementing their teams during the, the whole launch phase to uh, just ongoing support and, and, and consultants that can help them in mm-hmm. you know, driving this, this new business and driving change. But we, we don't have any intention of like operating the business on behalf of our clients. Got it. So when I think about uh, you know, the consumer world, I feel like I would go to Facebook or eBay because there are already marketplaces there if I'm trying to buy or sell something. And when I think about B2B, I can see some industries like uh, Toyota is a good example where I can see the after sales service and parts, et cetera, that need to, to also go to the person who bought the car. But I'm curious if you can give me some more examples of typical use cases where a, a platform like yours makes sense. Yeah. So, so... 
So if you think of our company today, basically, our, I'm going to simplify it, but our business splits uh, 50% with you know, consumer retail type of marketplaces and 50% uh, B2B type of marketplaces. On, on, the, on the consumer retail side, uh, once again, oversimplifying, we have, I would say, two kinds of, of clients. We have retailers who don't manufacture the products they sell. They are, you know, like the best buys of the world. They buy and resell products. Right. And, and the play here is really for them to have a significant extension of their catalog to complement their existing offering without having to all the capital expenditure associated to buying more merchandise, store, storing the merchandise, shipping the merchandise. So it's, it's really low risk, drastic commerce acceleration and improvement of the customer experience. Because I used to say that, you know, when we pitch those companies, often we come in and we do search on their site for obvious products. And we have those famous pages that say, sorry, the product is not available. And we tell them, it's like having a customer walking into your store and telling him, get lost, yeah. go away. Uh, today, with the competition of Amazon and, and other, other you know, channels, you can't afford to do that anymore. So this is like really the standard retail marketplace case. Then we have a second case in consumer, which are more brand manufacturers who, you know, uh, like... Uh, um, anthropology or express or jewels in the UK who, who basically want to, you know, they think of themselves, yes, we're a brand. We've built a, 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 an audience around our products, but we know that our customers want more than what we, we sell to them. And, and we think that, you know, we could become a, bl a brand platform. And so they use the marketplace as a way to invite third party brands to extend. So if you go on express, for example, today, you'll be able to buy some watches, some sunglasses, mm -hmm. a lot of products that complete the, the experience of the shopper and basically keeps the shopper on the site and more engaged with mm. the, the brand. So, so these are really the, the two use cases and they can be, you know, as I said, as a, as a complement to an existing business or as a new business, which is being uh, stood up like, uh, uh, H&M launched, uh, launched a new, a new brand called a uh, found, uh, which is a off price fashion marketplace where basically they're, they're reselling third party brands. Uh, so that's the consumer side on the, on the B2B side, similarly, and, and over simplistically, we have, let's say two or three use cases. One is on the B2B distribution. So if you are, a big distributor of electronic components, uh, plumbing equipment, construction material, uh, food for chefs and, and restaurants. Mm -hmm. You have the same kind of uh, need to become a one-stop shop for your clients. And that involves being able to offer them the full range of products that they're probably looking to buy from you. And, and the way to, to, to address that and solve it efficiently, capital efficiently and cost efficiently is by having more suppliers onboarded through a marketplace model. And, and the other and final, and I'll stop there probably, but when it comes to manufacturers, manufacturers are at a point in their lives where they, they're trying to think their direct to consumer strategies. And they, they think of how can I sell direct to my customers without 
cutting the middlemen, the distributors, mm. the dealers? Uh, how can I create a more holistic experience for, you know, if I've bought a, you know, if I'm looking for maintaining a plane or train, um, I want to find the parts, I want to find the services, but I want to find it locally from my approved distributor. So we have a lot of manufacturers creating those B2B2B uh, mm. plays through the, the marketplace also. Mm. I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's given me a, a somewhat clear idea of the value proposition for Miracle. I want to change direction a little bit and talk a little bit about what's going on in general in e-commerce and big trends that you're seeing. So obviously the pandemic has has, as you said, accelerated a lot of um, drivers or, or shifts that you were starting to see in retail and in e-commerce. And I was curious, maybe you can start off first just through the eyes of your customer. What changes are you seeing because of the pandemic? And then sort of at a larger, more macro level, what do you see as things that are going to change beyond the pandemic and those that are going to revert back and go back to the way things were. What is your opinion on that? It's a, it's a big question. It's a broad question. I, I think, <laughs> and, and um, so I, I'll put aside the, because I'm not the best specialist, but I put, I'll put aside the whole, uh, you know, change in the store technology to prevent, you know, uh, touching things and, but there's definitely going to be investments in, in, you know, contactless payment and, and, and even the, the beacons, the, the temperature, the, mm. the virtual fitting and things like that. But that's a, I, I will put that aside. I think that when it comes to uh, what we are actually seeing is, you know, it, it often takes a crisis to, to finally engage the radical changes that, that people need to make and have been, pushing back. And I think if you, if you think of retail, I'm going to be simplified, but the, the, it's interesting to understand the, the, the shareholder base of retailers today in the world was base, is basically families who sometimes, you know, uh, are not the more poised to, to do massive capital expenditure to adapt to the, to the new digital competition, uh, private equity funds who are naturally focused on EBITDA improvement, which is not always compatible with investing in innovation uh, because the length of return is not the same. And a lot of, uh, you know, public companies who are facing the need to report quarterly earnings, which, you know, quarter, you might question the, I'm not, I'm not going to here reinvent the, the ways the stock market work, but what can really, what can you really do in over a quarter? So, so for all those reasons, there are fundamental changes that have, that have not been done by most of the retailers around the world. And, and, and there are, we, we've seen three big impacts that can't be ignored anymore. The first one, most retailers have too many stores, which are not, either looking the way they should, the size they should, located where they should. So, so this, you know, cleaning the store network is mandatory, uh, which what I see is being interesting on that point is rethinking the store as a drop ship facility also as a supply, as a, as a component of the supply chain 
for me is, is something that needs to be, uh, to be key. So there's been a lot of talks around omnichannel for many years, but you know, omnichannel has been such a, a pot of, of yep. stuff from like, Oh, I'm omnichannel because I have a website to I'm omnichannel because I'm really omnichannel. You can really pick up ship from store and, and everything. Uh, the second thing is the, the COVID crisis has demonstrated, I mean, has highlighted even more the fact that the, the, the supply chain um, of most retailers is too narrow. And by that, I mean uh, merchant-led organizations, the way they work is, you know, we identify a bunch of suppliers, we buy as much as we can from them because we get the best prices and then we can, you know, have these decent margins in our stores and we can do those pr constant promotioning because we now live in a world where if you're not doing a promotion, you're like weird. Mm -hmm. So, so the whole economy requires, has required them to, to not venture in having new suppliers, um, too many new suppliers. And what we've seen with COVID is that as soon as the crisis, you know, came up, it highlighted even more the shortage of supply chain, uh, alternatives. <laughs> and this, this is something that our clients who have, you know, endless supply chain because of the marketplace they are using when retailers were tanking, we've seen clients doing a hundred percent, a thousand percent growth year over year online, uh, because they were, you can't find that product. You bring another seller from this country or another seller from this country. When China was a bit shut down, they use alternative suppliers. When China reopened and their own country suppliers were facing shutdown, they had the Chinese suppliers back. So, so the agility that Marketplace has provided them has been, and I, I hope that they, and I can see that they're, even in those organizations, it has changed the mindset uh, to, oh yes, this thing is actually a good, a good strategy. And, and the third thing is, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that it is now so competitive to fight for clients online that you can't afford to lose any clients. And most, you know, most, the, the consensus is, is saying that the, the, the share of online will grow by five ad, additional five to 10 points, which basically means 30 to 50% increase of the, the weight of e-commerce and overall consumption. And in, in, in e-commerce, you can't, have someone who comes to your website, searches for something and finds a, sorry, we don't have it. Or someone mm. who types for a polo and you send him a, to a page for perfume. Um, and the only way you can have that depth of assortment choice is not, you know, as I said, it's not by trying to, to make or buy all the products, but it's by thinking of alternative ways to have those products and, and marketplace is definitely, uh, at the forefront of those alternative ways. So, mm. so, you know, it's a bit of a long answer, but I think it's interesting to understand the, yeah. the trends and the dynamics and. Yeah. So that's on the, on the e-commerce retailers side, how do you see this crisis having changed or accelerated buyer behavior on the other side? And are there behaviors that you have seen that e-commerce companies need to be cognizant of and evolve their model? Yeah. So I think, I mean, and there's many things, but maybe I'll, I'll talk about two. On the B2B side, on the B2B buyer side, the trend 
was definitely already engaged in terms of digitization of the, the buying experience. And which is why a lot of B2B companies, manufacturers, distributors over the last five years have been either implementing commerce or thinking of ways to uh, go beyond. Like if you, if you take manufacturers, most of their phase one digitization was we're going to digitize our catalog, meaning you can go on the manufacturer site and look for the products. And then we'll have what they call sometimes, you know, a dealer locator or a where to, where to buy function, which was basically, if you think of the buyer, you know, I go on a website, I research a product, I find a product, then I need to click. And then they're telling me, Hey, by the way, call that person. And then I, that person may or may not have an e-commerce website. Uh, may or may not pick up the phone. So it, it was too disjointed. Plus mm-hmm. the manufacturer had no idea. Like they brought you on your, on their site. They told you what product you needed. They pointed you out to the dealer, but they have no idea whether you're going to end, end up buying or not from that person. So, so clearly with this crisis, we're seeing an acceleration of B2B companies willing to offer a, a really integrated experience for their buyers. Right. Uh, that, that, you know, is much more digital, but does not kill the, the very intermediated economy that exists in most manufacturing industries, because they need those local distributors that can locally service the product. Sometimes they need the assembly. Sometimes they have very distributed network of parts. Mm. So, so once again, it's a, it's a trend towards consolidation, digital consolidation, but a consolidation that does not kill too many middlemen, digitization that, that is built on integrating the middlemen, which is once again, you know, what, what a marketplace uh, allows, allows to do. And I think the, the second trend, which we've seen is, and it is once again, it's not like just COVID, it's, it's more an acceleration, is we, we work a lot with um, uh, purchasing mm-hmm. departments who are uh, facing more and more the needs uh, from their internal buyers uh, to benefit from a more open sourcing network than the traditional Ariba closed networks that you know, a lot, most organizations have been you know, organizing procurement around. And so with the COVID, what happened is that we saw a lot of organization and the perfect example was for the PPE products. If you are someone with the administrative function within a company and suddenly you need to find Lysol and gels and, and, and you go into your Ariba uh, ordering center, there, no one has those. But then you go on Amazon or you go on one of our clients, for example, is a, one of the largest group purchase organization in the US for medical offices. And they launched a marketplace called stocked. And I personally bought for my company masks and when, when you couldn't find it anywhere else. Yeah. So, so this is also triggering uh, a need for companies to offer uh, more open sourcing mm-hmm. for their, their procurement teams. And I think this is also a trend which is going to accelerate in B2B distribution. And when you think of it, it's, it's just a mimicking of what happened in the, B, in the B2C uh, history. Yeah. So who's the, I, 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 you, the, the picture you're painting 
seems very rosy, right? Because you have a more open sourcing. The consumers have more choice. The middlemen are not cut out. Shops, retailers, brands are able to offer more choice and hence more loyalty and more time and engagement with their consumers. So it seems to me like a total win-win. Who's losing in this? Who are the losers? It goes back to the name, you know, it's a miracle. (laughs) No, honestly, I've spent the last what, 15 years of my life advocating for a model which has changed everybody's life on a daily basis. And somehow there is this kind of schizophrenic attitude where on the one hand, every day we buy our, you know, travel from marketplaces. We buy stuff from marketplaces. We, we get our car ride from marketplaces. We rent our our summer rental on the market. I mean, we have our dogs being walked by people we found on Rover. We have handymen from TaskRabbit coming to our house. We, we find the um, freelancers on the, on on the Fiverr. Uh, We are marketplaced. (laughs) We've marketplaced our lives, but somehow we, we still challenge the the model. What are the risks? The risks are always the same. You know, it's you order something from a supplier who doesn't ship the product, but if the marketplace is well organized, you get guaranteed, you get reimbursed, you get protection, you get something which is counterfeit. Well, you go back and you say, I received something which is counterfeit and you get reimbursed. As much as I try, (laughs) obviously I I will be accused of being biased. uh, But today, 40 to 40 to 60% of online transactions in the world happen on a marketplace. Recently, we conducted a survey in partnership with Oracle that we update every year. 92% of business buyers say they would prefer the experience of a marketplace to buy because they would have more choice. So will suppliers and, and smaller intermediaries still list on Amazon and also on other marketplaces and basically get more revenues because they're now listing multiple places. Do you see this impacting Amazon in any way at all? I think that there's two ways you can take Amazon down or at least a bit lower than what it is. One is a regulation approach and, <laughs> and I'm not here to advocate for any, uh, you know, state uh, involvement uh, because I, you know, breaking down companies, is, I have no say in politics and it's not my, and I don't think that it's fair uh, competition in a way to, to do that to a company. The other way is by, uh, if you think of Amazon's beautiful model, it's, it has, you know, 20 years ago, it was a bookseller. Yep. So operating as a, what we refer to as a, as a pipeline model, they, you know, they buy, they, they sell. It's a very linear value chain. And they suddenly they became a platform. What is becoming a platform? Becoming a platform is basically going towards a, you know, asset light margin high business model. And how did they do that? They said, you know what? We have all these people coming on our site. They must be looking for other stuff to buy Uh, We have all that traffic. There are all these other third parties who don't have the traffic we have and that we invest in in building. So why don't we invite those third parties and take a commission on their transactions and we'll we'll keep the customers, the customer will be happy, the sellers will be happy because they will sell products and we will be happy and our shareholders will be happy. And that was the beginning of the famous Amazon flywheel. And then they did the same thing with 
you know, fulfillment buy where they had those warehouses and they say, well, why wouldn't we rent them to other people? And they did the same thing with their servers, which became AWS. And, and so the, the platformization of business models is really something which has made the strength of Amazon. And, you know, when one of our baseline at Miracle is powering the platform economy, we think that the only way you can actually compete against Amazon is by creating alternative mm-hmm. platforms Makes sense. Where, where people um, have, have, you know, maybe sometimes they're better treated. You know, on Amazon, there's been a lot of stories about how merchants can be shut down in a completely arbitrary way, how Amazon learns from what merchants sells and then they manufacture or source directly. All this is true. And it's, you know, it's fair business practice, but it's unfair when your only outlet to sell is Amazon. So what we're basically doing with Miracle is trying to bring a bit more uh, competition in the market. And it's, it's in a way uh, what capitalism is about, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's like you said, good for everybody to have choice. And I think that's what Miracle provides. It provides more choice to a lot of different intermediaries in the e-commerce chain. Okay, we still have a a little bit of time and I want to turn a little bit into your commercialization go-to-market strategy. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you went about getting your first few customers, what was your strategy, and maybe a little bit about how you think about building the brand of Miracle. I wish I had the answer to the second question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, No, no. So our go-to market as, and I'll put aside the, maybe the international aspect of it, but we are an enterprise software solution. So our our go-to market is very traditionally uh, relying on creating top of funnel uh, through outbound events, events, you know, ABM, uh, LinkedIn campaign. I mean, we're not a, a, a freemium mm-hmm. technology which drives, you know, with a low price point where you just sign up people. So, so we, we started very, uh, very bootstrap and we, we had a list of 50 companies that we called no brainers. And we just figured out a way to get a first meeting there. Even eight years into the, the company's journey and, you know, 300 people of close to $100 million raised and, and close to $100 million in, in AR, we, we are still evangelizing. We are still, you know, fighting hard to get meetings, to, to bring the right people around the table, to, to try and drive the conversation that, you know, in a way that we're having right now, which is, what's happening in the world, what, what is the impact of digitization on, on, on your business, uh, where do you get growth? Um, but wouldn't your channel partners be able to help in that? I mean, you're plugging into so many different e-commerce systems with a functionality that's yeah. complementary. Wouldn't they be able to bring that in for you? Yeah, so we, we have 10 people in the company who, who are specifically... Uh, working with partners every day. And those partners basically split into three categories. You have the, the e-commerce vendors, which are kind of our anchor. You have the surrounding technology companies, you know, in the payment space, in the 3PL management, in the tax calculation, because there's, there's an ecosystem of technologies revolving around the marketplace. 
And we have all the system integrators from the Deloitte Accentures of the world to the more specialized digital agencies. So we do rely uh, on them. Today, 30% of our business comes through partners mm. on average. Okay. Uh, so they are, they are a key part of our strategy and you're, you're absolutely correct to, to bring it up. But so, and it ties a bit to, you know, the brand question because building a brand in enterprise B2B software. And, and, and I think I've listened to probably, uh, I wouldn't lie, but close to a hundred podcasts around the topic yeah. from the, the storytelling, the narrative, the crossing the chasm, the, the challenger sale, the, yeah. you know, I, it, besides, uh, I mean, a, a pure B2B enterprise software that has created a real brand. There are not many of them, maybe Salesforce, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Microsoft, but Microsoft is very consumer oriented also, mm -hmm. uh, with their office products. So, uh, so there, there are not, um, and even, you know, you go and talk to my mom and you ask her, does she know Salesforce? Uh, she doesn't know Salesforce. I mean, she's not the buyer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think uh, build, building it. So the way we've built our brand is really, uh, we've always tried to highlight, uh, emphasize a lot on thought leadership. We aim for C-level uh, discussions. We comment a lot and on, we partner with McKinsey's and, and mm -hmm. consulting firms on, on events. We, mm -hmm. so, so that has been our way of, of building our brand, which is, uh, it's a thoughtful vision. It's, uh, it, it's anchored around trying to really understand the, the, the trends. Uh, we are lucky to be in a space where we don't have real like for like competition. Mm. We have, there are smaller companies trying to emulate what we're doing. They are, I would say, non really scalable alternatives. Uh, so we're a bit doing the, the, the space creation ourselves and trying to, to anchor it around the, we're serious people, here to talk about serious trends impacting your business. Yeah, no, I think, I think being a platform in some ways, you don't need to have the same type of consumer brand uh, approach because you're actually enabling so many different brands to basically uh, become better and offer more choice. But I think where you can probably do the branding is actually... I know it sounds cliche on the storytelling about the freedom that Miracle gives. The freedom that Miracle gives to the e-commerce players in terms of, you know, removing some of these shackles from the past on how the supply chain worked and the agility that it gives. I think that is a very powerful story, actually. And it's something that I think, I'm sure you are, but that's, I think that's what's going to create your brand. I think people will all identify with it because they all feel that pain. No, and I appreciate, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the, the difficult thing about engaging with and having conversations with extremely smart and knowledgeable people like you, and I'm not flattering, we're not good at flattering, uh, but, but it's that there are so many ways that, you know, freedom, as you said, is one way. Uh, removing friction is another way. Expanding the scale yeah. of a business is another way. Uh, and trying to find also a message that unites the use case of a Airbus selling aftermarket parts yeah. with a urban outfitters yeah. expanding to third-party suppliers selling from sneakers to trendy dog outfits. Yeah. 
some people call it a marketplace. Some people call it a platform. Some call it a supplier expanded network. Some, yeah. It's, um, I think that's more a verticalization messaging strategy. And we can talk more about that. <laughs> I love this topic. So it's, uh, um, it's an area that, that yeah. I enjoy talking about. Okay, we have a few more minutes. And I do want to touch upon your experience as head coach for Harvard Business School's Rock Accelerator program. That's um, amazing. I'd love to know how you got into that. But more importantly, because this show is about helping other startups, um, I would love for you to just spend a few minutes talking about what are the most common questions you hear from the founders that you're helping and advising? What are the most common problems that you keep seeing that you would like to give some advice or thoughts on? Yeah. So, so um, you know, we never escape our, our Freudian uh, connections. And my dad is a professor of finance. Uh, on top of being an entrepreneur and the finance valuation world. So I guess I, I grew up surrounded by masters and, 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 and having also a, a professor or dad. So I always thought that it would bring a lot of balance in the ability to, to do something where you actually give back. Uh, it's very intense to teach. And so, uh, but I've never, you know, gone the whole way of doing that. But over my life, I've always tried when I, even when I was at Deloitte and I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, trying to look for escapes. I, I created a class on, on restructuring that I, I sold to, I mean, I sold the concept to my, my former business school in France at HSC and, and, uh, and I got to teach for three years. And so I've always been trying to do things like that. And similarly, I live in Cambridge and, you know, in Cambridge, you have Harvard and MIT, not the worst universities in the world. <laughs> so I felt if I'm going to be here, it would be cool to do stuff with one of those universities. So I found a way to meet uh, John, Jody Gurdon, who, who runs the, the Rock Accelerator program and she great person. And she said, you know, we're always looking for coaches. We have this, these second year students at uh, HBS who, who, who are probably going to launch a, a startup and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it would be great to have you as a head coach. So I was very happily and, you know, mm-hmm. And it's been really fun. You know, I've been coaching for one year. Obviously, this year with COVID has been a bit of a disjointed experience. Um, but I, I mean, I personally need it and love it. I think it's great to... to, to and I, I guess I've been in situations where it, it ties to your second question, which is I've raised funds many times in my life. I've seen all kinds of VCs, you know, the ones that mm-hmm. show up with the a bit arrogant 23 year old analyst who thinks he knows everything and is going to challenge you on the third line on the second tab of your Excel spreadsheet <laughs> in, in, in the year, four years from now, uh, to the other investors like, you know, Bain Capital Venture, the, our, our lead there, uh, Scott Friend, amazing entrepreneur himself, great guy, believes in the business. And we all know that every single Excel spreadsheet is wrong. And, and, and whatever you say in your spreadsheet, you will never do the numbers that are there. So let's try to focus on the team, on the people. Um, so I've tried to, you know, when I interact with the, 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 the students, I try to, to kind of bring two things. One is uh, the grit that it takes to, to go and, and sell your, your vision, your business, your product, and, and show them that you can always try to get access to something. And the other thing is, and I think that's the most fundamental, is that 
you know, think of that. You're a smart person. You went to, a, you know, you probably worked in consulting or banking. You went to a good university. You got an HBS. You paid loads of money to, to do your MBA. And then you, what, you're going to start a company and have no, no salary and, uh, and yes. lots of risk. Most of the, the ones I see, they, it's always the same thing. It's like, there's a million reasons not to do your, your company. Like, right. uh, you always find people who will say the market is too small. The market is too big. The market is too this, the, the technology, this most of the time you launch your business, you think you're alone. And within the five days of launching your company, you find a competitor. I've seen that. happen, <laughs> and, there's a, and then you have that, Oh shit, I thought I was alone. And, and then people will tell you, Oh, you need a competition. So I think my main takeaway is just, you know, I mean, and that's great branding from Nike, but ju- just do it. It's never the best ideas that win at the end of the day. It's the best team with the most passion, the most energy. And, and I think sometimes you, you got to be careful, especially in the US, because you, you, you mentioned storytelling. We live in a world where we're surrounded by stories and people are extremely good at rewriting the story uh, afterwards. And, and saying, oh, you know, I was in this garage and I thought everything was lost. And, but it never happened that way, you know. You, so so, um, yeah. so I, I think you, you, it's my third company, the, first, the third one, the first one, you know, I, I worked three years. I, I left with 10 grand in my pocket. Uh, the second one, I, I, I decided to do a video game marketplace. I'd never played video games in my life, but I liked my co-founder and we ended up, you know, we're having a successful exit, you know, I think you just need to get on the, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. I think that's good advice for, for everyone listening. So I usually have this rapid fire round, but we're, we're over time. So I'm still going to ask you at least a few questions. What do you think is, what is your favorite book when it comes to, um, you know, what do you think founders and startup entrepreneurs should read? Is there any that you would recommend that you've liked that you really recommend? I, I don't read the uh, startup books. I think they should read Hemingway because he's the greatest write, writer of all time. And, uh, okay. and, uh, and I think uh, I escape in literature, not in founder's literature. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Any Hemingway specific book that you would say is your favorite? Uh, I, the Sun Also Rises. Okay. And I assume your favorite in European city is Paris. Paris. Yeah. And what's like the must do if, if I go to Paris, what is a must do for me there? Fall, fall in love. <laughs> okay. Beyond that, anything else I should see or do? Uh, you know, find a nice terrace and just sit there with a good book. And a bottle and, of wine. And, uh, and look at people for four hours, not checking your phone and checking <laughs> your WhatsApps. Sounds heavenly. I think that's um, a very Parisian thing to say. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Adrian. I completely enjoyed our conversation. And I, I, I think I'm over time, but um, I think everybody in the audience is going to really enjoy this podcast and, and listen to your thoughts about what's going on in, in e-commerce today. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thanks a lot, Anita. And, you know, there's no surprise of being over time when you have a French person on the, on the podcast. <laughs> well said. <laughs> have, a, have a good day. Thank you. 